People do not give it credence that a 14-year-old girl could leave home and go off in the wintertime to avenge her father's blood. But it did not seem so strange then, although I will say it did not happen every day. I was just 14 years of age when a coward going by the name of Tom Cheney shot my father down in Fort Smith, Arkansas, and robbed him of his life and his horse and $150 in cash money, plus two California gold pieces that he carried in his trouser band. Hello, my name is Devin Diazoni, not Matty Ross, and this is Film Literate, a books and movies podcast where I'll be talking about first-person perspective. On this episode, I'll be looking at True Grit, a 1968 Western novel by Charles Portis about, well, it's about a lot of things, but among them, obstinance, self-reliance, and vengeance. Maddie Ross, our heroine and narrator, takes us through her memory of the pursuit of the man who murdered her father. I don't remember ever not knowing about this novel, but for years and years, I never read it. A film based upon the book, starring John Wayne, was made in 1969, and won the Silver Screen Icon his only Academy Award. But for years and years, I never saw it. So successful was the motion picture that he returned to the character in a sequel alongside Catherine Hepburn six years later. Then, finally, in 2010, the Coen brothers released their own adaptation of True Grit, which was my first encounter with the narrative. Released just before Christmas, some friends and I caught it a day or two. Maybe three, but no more than a week after. I remember that because I hadn't seen it opening night and I catch everything I care this much about going in opening night. So when those lights finally did dim, I was just about ready to burst. Then, probably five or six trailers and one film later, I stumbled out of the theater. We, my small group and I, stood around afterwards for over an hour in downtown San Jose, the chill of late December biting at our bones, discussing the film. It was exciting. Well, why wouldn't it be with a story like that and those actors? It was funny. Of course it was funny. It was the Coen Brothers. It was melancholy, and that's where the thing really threw me, like a horse sick to death of my spurs. I couldn't quite wrap my head around how emotionally effective the experience was, and thus I couldn't articulate just how much the film already meant to me. For quite a while after, it remained this practically perfect, self-contained artifact. I bought the book, but it just sat on my shelf. As for the first film, directed by Henry Hathaway, in all honesty, I've never had much interest in John Wayne. So it was just me in 2010's True Grit, marching through time toward my list of favorite films ever made, something I refused to add a movie to until it's existed for at least five years. But how could it be a personal all-timer when I'm not even sure it's my favorite Coen Brothers movie? Probably isn't, in fact. I mean, there's Barton Fink, Fargo, The Big Lebowski, do I need to go on? And since then, Inside Lewin Davis, a film I worked on for weeks as it happens, first as an extra and then Oscar Isaac's hand double, Maybe the most exhilarating and easily the most surreal days of my professional life. What was it about this one remake-slash-retelling of a story that wasn't even theirs? True Grit, I mean. And why was I struggling to quantify my appreciation of it? Finally, I gave in and started reading the book. Now, this is not my preferred order. I'm partial to reading a book before seeing the movie, as, in my experience, most film-buff bookworms are. So it took me a while to stop picturing Haley Steinfeld, Jeff Bridges, and Matt Damon especially because so many pages were pretty much carbon copies of scenes in the 2010 film. Or, rather, vice versa. But I got there, more or less, and what a novel it is. Engaging, hilarious, and thrilling, all while never once losing the narrator's voice. That of older Maddie Ross, her opinions as unvarnished as ever, decades removed from the events relayed. The story begins with the quote I read to open this episode. Maddie's father has been murdered. We're given a sense of time and place, and above all else, character. 
A 14-year-old girl with brains, courage, and diligence is out for blood on the frontier, acknowledging the incongruity of herself in such a situation. While seeing to what remains of her father's business in Fort Smith, Maddie seeks out answers regarding the apprehension of his killer. This leads her to Reuben J. Cogburn, or Rooster, the meanest U.S. Marshal the Fort Smith Sheriff can think of. She hires Rooster to pursue Tom Cheney, who a Texas Ranger named Labeef is also hunting. The three, some more reluctantly than others, ultimately team up and head out into the territory looking for Lucky Ned Pepper's gang, who they hear Cheney's thrown in with. On the way, they meet a modest cast of well-drawn characters, but finally chance upon their quarry. What happens then, we'll get to in time. Preparing for this episode compelled me to finally visit the John Wayne feature, co-starring Kim Darby and Glenn Campbell, directed, like I said, by Henry Hathaway. And on the surface, here's the thing. It doesn't feel very different at all. In fact, at times it felt so not different that I caught myself wondering just what the Coens had hoped to gain from running Portis's novel back. But then, by the end, that melancholy, that resonance, it simply wasn't there. A vacancy existed where an essential component ought to have been. But what was it? It couldn't just be the music and performances. No, 1969's True Grit left me with such a total sense of emotional disconnect that I was forced to look a little more closely. And my sort of thesis here, if I have one, can be tidily summarized with the opening of each film. One simply hits the novel's plot points while the other tells the story from its intended vantage. 1969's version starts with a little ditty sung by co-star Glenn Campbell, and it's called... Wait, let me check my notes here. Oh, okay, that's right. True Grit. Makes sense. It goes, One day, little girl, the sadness will leave your face as soon as you've won your fight to get justice done. Some days, little girl, you wonder what life's about, but others have known few battles are won alone. So you look around to find someone who's kind, someone who is fearless like you. The pain of it will ease a bit when you find a man with, drum roll please, true grit. Did you think we were done? No. It continues. One day you will rise and you won't believe your eyes. You'll wake up and see a world that is fine and free. Though summer seems far away, you'll find the sun one day. Though summer seems far away, but you'll find the sun one day. Nailed it. A little on the nose. But anyway, yeah, we sit through all that as we opening credits play. And uh, then we watch Frank Ross and Tom Chaney ready for their ride to Fort Smith. And everyone's out front to see them off. Everyone, that is, except Maddie the bookkeeper. Which, in fairness, is a good way to show not tell us that she's taken on quite a lot of responsibility. Despite being... 14, apparently. Kim Darby was 21 when the movie debuted, and the haircut they give her isn't totally successful in whatever it's trying to achieve. She comes off more like some unwettable Jane Austen novel transplant, still living at home after willfully rejecting an ill-conceived marriage proposal or two. But... Okay, never mind, she's 14. She says goodbye to her father, and then we get a quick rundown of everything that happens when Frank Ross and Tom Chaney arrive in Fort Smith. Props to them again, I suppose, for showing, not telling. But who is this movie about? After five minutes, it's a reasonable question. In 2010, the Coens opted to open their true grit with darkness, a few lonely piano keys ringing out, and the following, The wicked flee when none pursueth. Proverbs 28.1 Slowly, light fights through, but all is indistinct. Then, as the nighttime sea comes into candlelit focus, we slow dolly in on the corpse in the dirt at the foot of the monarch boarding house porch. Voiceover narration from Elizabeth Marvel as grown-up Maddie, the novel's prologue condensed, tells us everything we need to know. Approaching hoofbeats rise to a roaring rumble. 
A man on horseback passes over the body like crashing thunder, and then all fades. We're now on Cheney's galloping silhouette, rifle slung across his back, presumably on a cotton plow line rather than a proper strap, as he rides off, up and over a hill crest. No doubt Cheney fancied himself scot-free, but he was wrong. You must pay for everything in this world one way and another. There is nothing free, Maddie closes with unwavering resolution, except the grace of God. And then her fourteen-year-old self is looking out the window of a train as it pulls into Fort Smith. So the first voice we hear, the first face we see, belongs to Maddie Ross. This is her story. As points of comparison, the differences here, the zigs and zags, are plain to see. But filmmakers are faced with question after question after question, and each one has infinite answers, none of which are inherently wrong. Their job, really, is making choices. Joel Cohen actually said a bit about this while promoting the tragedy of Macbeth with regards to adapting Shakespeare, or any stage play, for the screen. Also, trust me, an hours-long Macbeth movies episode is on the back burner. But yeah, Joel spoke about the nature of stage versus screen direction. Movies are very much about where you're looking, he said, from where you're looking, and how long you're looking at a very particular thing from a particular angle. Now, what he's talking about is cinematography and editing and production design versus theater, where there's, as he puts it, one sort of visual metaphor for the whole thing, but it's nevertheless all very apropos to capturing first-person perspective in film. Where you're looking, from where you're looking, and how long you're looking at a particular thing from a particular angle. So, if the dual True Grit openings, literally night and day, are the macro, let me dive a little deeper into the micro. The introduction of Rooster Cogburn plays out in two very different ways, though line for line there's really little difference. In both films, he's met in earnest in Judge Parker's courthouse, but only after a brief encounter with him elsewhere. For clarity, I'll call the two roosters John Wayne and Jeff Bridges. And before we see him on the stand, John Wayne rolls into town with a wagon full of outlaws. He's presented as a strong, capable man. Matty approaches him, but he's in a hurry. Jeff Bridges, on the other hand, we don't get a look at until the trial, but we hear him, with his gruff, mumbly, instantly iconic voice, Maddie stalks Rooster to the Jinx, or outhouse, but he's within, and, needless to say, occupied. Will be for some time. So, let's look at the courthouse. Outlaw Otis Wharton's on trial, but Rooster's being cross-examined about his own history of violence, in particular with regards to the Wharton boys. And, again for clarity here, we'll call the two Maddies Kim Darby, from 1969's adaptation, and Haley Steinfeld, from 2010's. The scene belongs to the U.S. Marshal, Rooster Cogburn, but this is where the older film really starts to lose sight of who the story is about. Lose sight. There's got to be an eye patch pun in there somewhere. Rooster wears one, by the way, and people like to remind him of it. But anyway, yeah, in 1969's wider shots, you see Kim Darby sitting in the front row of the gallery, watching the scene play out. She's there, but that's it. True, neither Maddie has any lines here, but you'd be forgiven for forgetting about Darby entirely. Steinfeld, meanwhile, enters the room after things have already gotten started taking us inside with her. Jeff Bridges is answering questions, but he's hard to see through the crowd and backlit by the window. Steinfeld moves through the spectators and so does the camera. A shot of her taking a step forward is followed by a reverse POV shot inching just a little bit closer to Bridges. Shot, reverse shot. Step through the crowd, shot, reverse shot. She's intrigued, we're intrigued. Her better position is our better angle. Only when she gets close enough, when Bridges comes into full view, do the Coens decide to leave Steinfeld behind for a bit, because, while this is still her story, Maddie willingly concedes the scene. She wants the measure of the man, wants us to have it too. 
And so the cross-examination unfolds, a legend simultaneously built and demystified around this affable, irritable, violent, and perhaps a bit oafish character. But let's talk about Jeff Bridges for a moment. He had just won an Oscar for 2009's Crazy Heart, but impressed people so much as Rooster that he landed a second consecutive Best Actor nomination, losing to Colin Firth for The King's Speech. Okay, to set the record straight, I think film awards are masturbatory and meaningless, but for whatever reason, I let myself care about them. Kind of a lot, actually. So give me a minute to write this wrong. Good as Bridges was in Crazy Heart, that was absolutely a career achievement sort of victory. He hadn't won yet, and who doesn't love the dude? But wait a year and he actually earns it in True Grit. Give the previous year's Oscar to Jeremy Renner for The Hurt Locker. Or hell, wise up, nominate Michael Stahlbarg for A Serious Man and give it to him. But now you've taken Colin Firth's golden statuette, and he deserves one too, doesn't he? Uh, so let's go Best Supporting Actor for 2011's Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy. Done. Watch that movie again, keep your eye on Bill Hayden whenever he's on screen, that's uh, Colin Firth's character, and tell me I'm wrong. But wait, now Christopher Plummer loses for beginners, so give him his trophy for playing Mike Wallace in 1999's The Insider. Whoops, now Michael Caine only has one, because he got his second that year for The Cider House Rules. Alright, and I'm not kidding here. The Muppet Christmas Carol, 1992, Best Actor, narrowly defeating, I'm sorry to say, Denzel Washington for Malcolm X, who lost that year to Pacino. Sorry, Al, but scent of a woman's out. This episode brought to you by hoo and other weird noises Al Pacino likes to make. Though, come on, Al Serpico, Sonny, Don, Michael, Corleone, Scarface, Pacino can't not have an Oscar. So, for a bit of true justice, 1975's A Dog Day Afternoon. Bam. However, that was Nicholson's first of three. He won for One Flew of the Cuckoo's Nest. How about instead we crown him one year earlier for Chinatown? Or two years earlier for The Last Detail, which leaves Harry and Tonto's Art Carney winless, or takes one away from Jack Lemmon for Save the Tiger. But I haven't seen either of those, so who knows? Who cares? Whatever. Back to True Grit. A divergence from the source material made by the Coens and not Henry Hathaway was to split Maddie and Rooster from LaBeef, the Texas Ranger, for a little while. It's also another example of the Coens emphasizing first-person perspective. See, after the trial and some convincing, a deal is struck between Maddie and Rooster, but all the same, Rooster throws in with LaBeef and leaves Maddie behind. Cheney's worth more money in Texas than he is in Arkansas. She catches up with them, and only through her inexhaustible persistence do they finally let her ride along. And so it's a trio on Tom Cheney's trail. However, two able-bodied men can handle most of what needs doing in the territory, so Maddie's a bit of a redundancy. The novel, at least, allows her to make retrospective observations while recounting the events, so her presence is never not felt. But in the earlier film, she's just sort of there. So to keep her hands on the wheel, or maybe, I don't know, the reins in her hands, the Coens allow the pre-existing friction between the beef and rooster to fester to the point of separation. As a result, Maddie is given more to do. She's kept right in the thick of it, a dependable and necessary ally to her own hired gun. Put her high up in a tree and so too goes the camera, and together we all miss what transpires on the ground. When Steinfeld and Bridges, without Damon, come to a cabin, it's Maddie who gets to tamp down the chimney and help smoke the two suspicious men inside out. Moon and Quincy are their names. Moon's injured and Quincy's hostile. Maddie shows some compassion to the wounded one, and develops a quick aversion to the other. Rooster asks them about Lucky Ned Pepper's gang, who Moon admits that he and Quincy are waiting on. 
The outlaws start to bicker amongst themselves, and this begets bloodshed, and Rooster puts Quincy down, though not before the latter manages to fatally stab Moon. John Wayne finds the same result as Jeff Bridges, but for half of the scene in 1969, Maddie's off tying up the horses and not even in the room. LaBeef had tamped down the chimney, because, remember, Glenn Campbell hadn't gone anywhere. So of what use is Kim Darby? Meaning, of course, Kim Darby's Maddie. Though, in doing research, I learned that Kim Darby was far from the first choice to play who should have been the main character. In pre-production, producer Hal Wallace and director Henry Hathaway were putting things together to get True Grit going. Wallace, who had produced Casablanca, and Hathaway, who had directed The Trail of the Lonesome Pine. Together, they had previously made The Sons of Katie Elder, also starring John Wayne. Anyway, the producer wanted Mia Farrow, fresh off of Rosemary's Baby, and the director wanted Sally Field from The Flying Nun. The producer got his way, because, of course he did, and the role of Maddie went to Mia Farrow. But she was off shooting Secret Ceremony with Robert Mitchum, and he told her that Henry Hathaway was a son of a bitch, and she'd hate him. She then suggested to Wallace that Roman Polanski take the helm. When the producer refused, Farrow quit, and then Darby was found. Though none of what's lacking in the character is her fault. It's the script that Portis himself disapproved of, and the John Wayne of it all, to be honest, that shortchanged Matty Ross in 1969's film. But Mia Farrow, and especially Sally Field, for me at least, are fascinating what-ifs. A third choice, but really, I think at least, affirms the decision the Coens made to try and tell more of a first-person perspective true grit, and also confirms that theirs is far superior, would be when lucky Ned Pepper meets Maddie. Until this point in the film, the end of the second act, we'd only seen lucky Ned Pepper, played impeccably by Canadian actor Barry Pepper, from afar. He came to the cabin, found Moon and Quincy dead, and narrowly escaped Rooster's ambush. The whole time, but for maybe a quick insert or two, were looking down at him from a ridge, from Maddie's point of view. And that's not even the scene I'm talking about. Later on, when she happens upon Tom Cheney watering his gang's horses, he captures her. There's a gunfight between the bandits and Rooster, but Lucky Ned leads Maddie away into the woods. He throws her on the ground, sticks a gun in her face, and puts his foot on her throat. Again, this is the 2010 version. The camera's angled up from Maddie's helpless position, zoomed in tight on Lucky Ned's ugly mug as he growls and shouts and spits through disfigured lips. He and Rooster yell back and forth at each other about what the former means to do with Maddie. The girl's nothing to me, Rooster tries, unconvincingly. She's a runaway from Arkansas. But all we get is all Maddie gets, a disembodied voice barely carried from its providence through the trees. She's alone. Henry Hathaway, in 69, cut away from Kim Darby and Robert Duvall, that film's Lucky Ned, to John Wayne throughout this exchange, Glenn Campbell beside him. Maddie's role is captive, though the topic of conversation isn't felt as intensely. Seeing John Wayne, something the runaway from Arkansas can't do, assures the audience of her imminent deliverance. There's no real sense of danger if we can just teleport over to literal John Wayne. In 2010, pinned to the ground and alone in the world. Well, if you didn't know she was going to live to tell the tale, you'd be sure Maddie was about to be shot right then and there. Fortunately for her, Lucky Ned soon presented as more of a nuanced and complicated rogue than all that. Besides, he's not the true villain of True Grit. Now that I think about it, there's a deep history between Lucky Ned and Rooster that really fascinates me. Maybe John Wayne's sequel explores it in flashback, or perhaps Warren Oates gets to as the same U.S. Marshal in True Grit A Further Adventure, but I doubt it. I wouldn't know, though. I've never seen either, the latter being a TV movie from, I want to say, 78, I think I read. But one thing that makes True Grit so special is the fact that it's a story about two tertiary characters in any other telling of it. For example, 
Akira Kurosawa's seminal masterpiece from 1954 is called Seven Samurai, not The Village That Hired Them. And people sing The Ballad of Jesse James, not a song about some guy he knew and rode with for a week. To be fair, the book's not about him, about Cheney, though his name's on probably every other page. Even I managed to mention Barry Pepper before Josh Brolin, who played Tom Cheney in 2010. Lucky Ned's simply more interesting. Cheney's really just a dunce, unless LeBeef's supposition of slow-wittedness being his act was accurate. But yeah, that's kind of the point, I think. He's the object of Maddie's revenge, but also a sort of dismantling of the black hat trope as some conniving, hateful reprobate, as a worthy adversary. Tom Cheney's a little more than a loser, scared, stupid, struggling like countless others, only handling things much, much worse. Lucky Ned and Rooster, meanwhile, enrich the story by being these archetypes playing out their intertwining epic narrative somewhat peripherally. And now at this time, sorry, I'm going to get into how the whole thing ends. So if you haven't seen either film or read the novel, maybe go do that now and come back later. Because here we go, Tom Cheney dies. Surprise, surprise. Maddie's left alone with him, he moves to kill her, LeBeef shows up, subdues Cheney, he and Maddie then get distracted by Rooster's showdown with Lucky Ned and company, Cheney gets up, knocks the Texan out, Maddie gets a gun, takes aim at her father's killer, and pulls the trigger. But oh no, Tom Cheney's only winged, and the recoil has thrown Maddie into a snake-infested crevice. Not to worry, though, John Wayne's here to shoot the bad guy, retrieve the girl, and save the day. Now, this isn't just about first-person perspective anymore. This is about the hero of the story. Haley Steinfeld falls down that same hole as Kim Darby, but her bullet takes Cheney out of this world. And if that's the objective, killing Cheney, who kills him counts. If it isn't Maddie, what's she even doing there? But after Haley Steinfeld kills Josh Brolin, it isn't like Jeff Bridges has nothing to do. He's still got to get Maddie out of the pit. So let's talk about that pit. In 2010, we're alone with Steinfeld, underground, fighting off the serpents, awaiting rescue. In 1969, we see John Wayne arrive and prepare for his descent. The Coens allow tension to mount. Henry Hathaway wants to hold your hand and let you catch your breath, tell you everything's going to be okay. And in his adaptation, I suppose he's right to, because in the end, as a result of being bitten by a rattlesnake, only Steinfeld loses the arm. Kim Darby keeps hers. After all, what kind of sunset could John Wayne ride off into if he'd failed to save each and every one of the young girl's limbs? For all these reasons given and many more, I find the Coen brothers' true grit to be a far cut above, both as an adaptation of the novel and as a film in general. Their knack for casting brilliant actors to play even the smallest supporting role works wonders here. Dakin Matthews embodies Colonel Stonehill, the horse trader, to put out perfection. Joe Stevens as the cross-examiner holds his own opposite bridges. Domhnall Gleeson and Paul Ray both kill it as Moon and Quincy, with Gleeson taking over the role from a young and twitchy Dennis Hopper in 69. And Barry Pepper almost walks off with the movie before Elizabeth Marvel brings it all home in the epilogue. But let's not gloss over how much fun Josh Brolin is as Tom Chaney, or how irreplaceable Matt Damon and Haley Steinfeld in particular are. This is probably my favorite performance Damon's ever given. If only he'd also sung the theme song a la Glen Campbell, and Steinfeld, with this demanding role, introduced herself here as a major talent, and has since delivered tenfold. I'm looking at you, the edge of 17, you, you, coming-of-age comedy, you, you that wouldn't work half as well without your leading lady. You're awesome, you hear? Awesome. Speaking of awesome, the Coen brothers. The Coen brothers, it should be noted, are used to writing original screenplays. Together, they've written and directed 18 feature films, only four and a third of which were based on somebody else's material the third being two-sixths of the Ballad of Buster Scruggs. 
but because my brain works a certain way, let's call it five, it's a good number for a list, this list being my ranking of adapted screenplays written and directed by Joel and Ethan Cohen. Number five, The Lady Killers. Now this movie is not bad, and I mean that in two senses. The first being the people think it's bad, but it isn't sense. The other being the how good is it? Oh, it's not bad sense. This live-action cartoon was an R-rated reimagining of a dark comedy from 1955 starring Alec Guinness and Peter Sellers. And while the original wasn't The Bridge on the River Kwai or Dr. Strangelove, did it need to be remade? And could the Coens really never find another role for Tom Hanks after this? I mean, they worked on The Bridge of Spies screenplay for Steven Spielberg, and Hanks to some of his best work in that one, delivering what are clearly words but the brothers wrote. It would have been nice to see him in a film of theirs, but felt a little less slight, a little bit weightier, a little bit better. But, I repeat, it's not bad. Number 4. The Ballad of Buster Scruggs this anthology film of six western shorts that never tie together, except thematically in the sense that all stories within are human and violent, is pretty powerful. Funny, strange, tragic, patient, romantic, existential, more or less in that order, the sum of its parts is actually an astronomical figure, but the overall experience can feel a little disjointed. The adapted stories are Jack London's All Gold Canyon, starring Tom Waits giving my favorite performance of his career, perhaps alongside Renfield and Bram Stoker's Dracula, and Stuart Edward White's The Girl, or Gal, Who Got Rattled, featuring Zoe Kazan, Bill Heck, and Granger Hines. The film was given a limited theatrical run, but exists, now and forever, on Netflix. Number 3. O Brother, Where Art Thou? Based on Homer's The Odyssey, this sepia-toned slapstick comedy with bluegrass music did just about everything right. It also features one of my favorite line readings of all time, when, uh, Delmer says to Everett after he thinks Pete turned into a toad, of course it's Pete, look at him. Maybe you had to be there, but it gets me every time. If someone told me that this was their favorite Coen Brothers movie, or favorite movie ever made, I wouldn't even blink. But for me personally, on this list alone it has some pretty stiff competition. Alright, number two. Number one. No, no, number two. True Grit. Tough break. Which leaves number one. What else? No Country for Old Men. One of many conceits I have for film literate are episodes on books that will never be adapted again, or should never be adapted again, because they are made into such indelible films the first time. And here's a no-brainer. From finding the money and coming back with the water, through everything, 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 Ed Tom Bell, to can you get those chicken crates out of the bed. And Woody Harrelson and Kelly MacDonald both batting a thousand in the conversation for the best film from the best film year, 2007, if not the best film ever made. Enough praise cannot be heaped on it, but I'll save most of mine. Joel Cohen's The Tragedy of Macbeth, which I mentioned earlier, doesn't rank here because Ethan didn't work on it with him. But if it did, that one would also be fighting for a top spot. It's such a beautifully stark, somehow cinematically theatrical work of art. But to close this thing out, let's talk about the ending. In 1969, Maddie's back home, her arm in a sling, and she offers the visiting rooster a space in her family plot. They banter, he mounts his horse, and then jumps a four-rail fence before riding away. The moment's funny, spirited, and triumphant. No wonder they made a sequel. What else would this rooster get up to, the fat old scoundrel? Forty-one years later, when the Coen brothers released their True Grit, they wrapped things up much more cleanly, despite making a bolder choice. Rooster rides with snake-bit Maddie back to civilization, and then, once help is found, we cut to a quarter century later. In the final three minutes of the film, Elizabeth Marvel's voiceover returns, and we see the woman herself. One-armed Maddie all grown up. She and Rooster plan a reunion, but he passes away just days before she arrives. 
His body is relocated from a Confederate cemetery to her family plot. Cut again to an even older Maddie, standing over Cogburn's grave. He's gone, she remains, left to reflect on the part he played in her life. Because this is Maddie's story, it always was. And the Cohen brothers found a way to make it so. Then, that piano tune, The Wicked Flea by Carter Burwell, returns, not for the first time, and then cuts out before becoming what it always was. The credits roll, and Iris Dement belts out leaning on the everlasting arms. I'm Devin Diazzoni, and this is Film Literate. I think I've said all I meant to, probably more than you wanted to hear. Time just gets away from us. Fade to black.